Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Observations. I am going to take you on yet another excursion deep into all sorts of pop culture, comic book history, um, untold tales, never before uh, you know shared stories, and and maybe a feud or two thrown 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 in for good measure. Because uh, today is is really chock full. It it is a uh, it it is a uh, a very diverse menu that we're going to throw at you today. A lot on my mind, a lot of stuff I want to share with you guys. So we're just going to kick right off, jumping into the fact that uh, some of you may or may not know that Marvel Comics uh, used to be known as Atlas Comics, and Atlas Comics was also the same people who are behind Marvel um, were behind were behind Atlas. And, uh, namely, um, your, your good friend, uh, a very familiar face to all of us, you know, Stan Lee and, uh, Atlas comics, uh, didn't become Marvel until the early, early sixties. And, uh, so, you know, you want, you want, um, you, you want, you want that, that knowledge, right? That, that knowledge of when did Marvel comics launch, you know, because uh, because we are absolutely, you know, heading to a uh, to a giant. You know, we we are we are we are past their 80th year, and there was a lot of fun stuff that they did with their 80th year. We're heading into their 82nd year, and uh, you know, that's because they can go back, and they can um, they can backtrack into the timely comics catalog, and they they can backtrack into their existence, uh, as, uh, as, as their existence as Atlas comics, but the entire, uh, Atlas Marvel timely, you know, um, um, history is something that I think the common person doesn't, isn't even aware of why I am even sharing this with you. Why the Atlas timely, the anniversary, all this stuff. Well, so the Eternals trailer dropped. Okay. The final trailer, I was told, I was about to nod off, uh, and 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 I saw on my Twitter feed at midnight they released the new Eternals, the Eternals trailer, the final trailer. I love that it. it, it's it's the final trailer, but we'll get two more, okay? Because that's how it works, right? And having watched it and enjoyed it, and I've been very psyched. If you followed this show, you know that I have been super psyched for the Eternals in general because the Eternals represents. Uh, the first pure Jack Kirby. He wrote it. He he illustrated it. He conceived it. He designed it. It is 100% a product of the king of comics, Jack Kirby. And uh, when Jack came back to Marvel in the 70s, he was writing and drawing everything. Just like when he had um, left Marvel to go to DC, he he really only wrote and drew his own stuff going forward. There were some side projects like, a, like an Eclipse um, fundraising book for a lawsuit called Destroyer Duck that he illustrated for Steve Gerber, but he probably also had a lot of story input in that. But for the most part, Jack Kirby would write and illustrate everything following. The Eternals is Jack's baby 100%. It is absent any other author but Jack. So it is Marvel's first 100% Jack Kirby because Captain America is with Joe Simon and pretty much everything else you've seen of Jack's in the MCU. And, and that's how so many my kids you know, that I mention all the time, my kids are kind of my conduit to how the rest of the public has consumed these properties because the main way they're consuming them, as you know, is 
is the theatrical experience, the MCU, the cinematic universe. And now over the last two years, you know, all of these TV shows, they were announced two years ago, but I guess they've only been running for, you know, almost a year here. WandaVision, Falcon, uh, you know, uh, uh, Loki, what, the upcoming Hawkeye, what if, all this stuff. This is how now they're, they're, they're consuming so much of it. All that stuff that you've seen from Jack was a byproduct of him working with someone else historically. And now the Eternals is just him. So the Eternals trailer comes out and we've all heard that Kit Harrington is playing the Black Knight. Well, guess what? Uh, you, you blinked and you missed him. Even, even on social media afterwards, uh, the Black Knight was being discussed like, hey, I thought the Black Knight was in this movie. Where's the Black Knight? Hey, I thought, well, he was there. He was there. He's there very briefly. He's there. You'll see him. You can slow it down. I'm sure by the time I'm recording this, there have been uh, two dozen clip shows on YouTube slowing down that footage and arrows blinking and pointing. This is the Black Knight. Okay, so the Black Knight that Kit Harrington is is playing is uh, is the third Black Knight in Marvel's history. Some of you may not know that, but uh, the Black Knight that he... Uh, is playing as Dane Whitman. That's what we've understood. That's what the casting says, Dane Whitman, which is the uh, third Black Knight that came down the pike for the Marvel Atlas catalog. You see the first Black Knight, and look, the Black Knight's a cool character. I always loved him. Again, remember, I love the weapons. I love the, you know, I love the guys who are swinging weapons, bows, arrows, swords, and certainly Black Knight has a killer sword. But, uh, you know, another, you know, again, cut from the Arthurian legend, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Black Knight from Atlas. So that's why I'm bringing up all this Atlas Marvel timely stuff. Atlas Comics, uh, in 1955 and 56, uh, really, I, I, I believe as, as a result of the, the, uh, focus, the heavy focus that was on Prince Valiant, um, and, 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 and other, other like-minded Shining Knight, other, other, other uh, Arthurian characters, they they decided to take their own bite at the apple with the Black Knight. And, and in Atlas Comics, uh, in, in 1955, they gave you uh, again. I've got I've got the documents right here. I love to just kind of read from this. Some um, sometimes you you hear this through the show. Then I'm I'm turning the pages. Um, the the actual Stanley scripted origin story of the Black Knight saw Sir Percy. Come to, Camelot, come to Camelot seeking sanctuary, claiming to have been driven from his lands and identifying himself as the cousin of King Arthur's nephew, Modred. So by the time the official Marvel handbook in the 80s comes out, the, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, and we've done an entire podcast on both DC and Marvel's official handbooks, and they are, they are absolute great tools to have if you can't afford the omnibus, the trade paperbacks, or the single issues are great to have. And those are maybe at a much cheaper price point because um, I know the omnibuses are, are expensive and they're expensive for a reason because it's a handsome, handsome book. Um, both of them, the, the DC Who's Who and the Marvel Universe Handbook. And I know follow-ups to both of them are coming, but in the revised Marvel Universe Handbook, the continuity from this earliest Black Knight is, has been revised um, to explain that King Arthur and um, Sir Percy's father were both were distant cousins, and Mordred was Arthur's son. It was made clear to the reader that Percy had not cravenly fled an attacker, 
but had actually been secretly summoned to Camelot by Merlin the Wizard. Merlin was aware that Modred was plotting to seize King Arthur's throne, and he felt he needed a strong knight to stand against the traitor. And uh, everyone known to be openly opposing Modred would be assassinated by Modred's henchmen. So Sir Percy, the Black Knight, uh, whose face was completely covered by a helmet, the original Black Knight, Black Knight has an entire bucket on his head. It is an entire bucket with the you know slits cut, carved out, cut out, uh, you know, constructed out, um, forged out for his eyes. And uh, so, so, so again, this is the bucket head uh, Black Knight, and uh, he was to stand against any assault by Modred against Arthur. So, um, in the stories that followed, published by Atlas prior to Marvel, Black Knight would continue to foil plots by Modred and uh, his wife, Morgan Le Fay. Then revised Marvel continuity uh, made Morgana Le Fay Mordred's aunt. A lot of these revisions going back and going, where can we tweak? I mean, again, we don't know the what Dane Whitman and, and how the Black Knight is going to figure into the Eternals. Clearly, there's going to be some immortal factor, but we don't know. The movies do their own thing all the time. Black Widow, Shang-Chi, which is coming out, they're all taking giant pivots, giant deviations. It's going to, it really is going to come down to some of the earliest of the Marvel films in the MCU. And, and the Fox films, which again, I'm here to tell you, the Fox X-Men films get a bad rap. Some of them are fantastic. They're going to be the ones that actually adhered closest to the comic book continuity that we know. Because as the Marvel Universe continues to expand and find reasons to pivot or to make things different, there's a lot of familiarity in comics. We all know this. There's a lot of familiarity. Um, the, the, the pivots that we're going to see, we can't anticipate those. They, they have made wild, I mean, Brie Larson's Captain Marvel made wild leaps that I, I was bothered by because I liked the previous history of Captain Marvel, but they took giant, you know, uh, liberties, but we just accept that now as, it, as it's necessary for what they're building out and we all just kind of go along with it. So same with the shows, all of it. In this, again, these revisions come down and they would change relationships from the Atlas comics. Um, this entire Black Knight series that I'm telling you about only lasted five issues, okay? And so uh, years later, after Atlas had transitioned formally to Marvel, uh, you know, Tales to Astonish launched or was, was being published and it had the first appearance of now a supervillain named the Black Knight. A character who at the time bore no relation whatsoever to the earlier heroic Sir Percy. This Black Knight, still not Dane Whitman, is Professor Nathan Garrett, a criminally inclined research scientist who developed a winged horse, a winged horse, and some advanced weaponry that included a power lance to aid him in his exploits as a costume felon. He battled Giant Man and the Wasp, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne. And, uh, that's who he battled. They defeated him. And uh, he would, you know, return to face them again. This time uh, appearing among the masters of evil. Uh, this this Black Knight would not join, would not enjoy a long career. Again, we're talking Buckethead. 
uh, in Avengers 48, published in 1967. Uh, it was revealed that Nathan Garrett died of wounds received in his last conflict with none other than Tony Stark Iron Man. And uh, this was in the Tales of Suspense, where which was publishing Iron Man at the time. And uh, before Nathan Garrett died, he contacted his nephew, a fellow research scientist named Dane Whitman. Boom, now we are in the Kit Harrington zone. And he passed on to him all the secrets of his Black Knight weaponry, technology, and he, he made Dane Whitman vow to use them for good. Whitman, immediately, Dane Whitman, the, the, the Black Knight that we are going to get presented in the Eternals, who we barely saw in the Eternals trailer. But look, so much of the focus is on our, you know, Madden and Harrington, the two Game of Thrones guys, right? I mean, Angelina Jolie is obviously the biggest movie star in the Eternals, but we all, the hair stood up on our back of our necks, on our arms, when we heard these killer Game of Thrones castings. Okay, everyone loves Game of Thrones. Can you believe also this coming year, this we are coming up on the 10-year anniversary of when Game of Thrones launched, and yet it had, had it has had a cultural um, impact, the likes of which I think is only measured by what's happening with Marvel. I mean, it is such... The, the, I mean, again, we're getting everything delayed. I was there in San Diego 2019. The Eternals came on stage. Everyone roared. Then they came on stage again at D23 a month later in Anaheim, California for the big Disney convention, and everyone flipped out. And, and, you know, all of them were, were assembled for us to watch and see up close and personal. And the movie was supposed to come out, you know, in 2020. So now it's, it's going to be almost 2022 when we get this movie. And this is all the buzz. And the reason I decided to focus on this today is because I go, I, I, you know, look, Black Knight is a very interesting character. I really dug him. The Dane Whitman Black Knight that appears in the Avengers, okay, um, Number 48, this is where we, we, we reveal Nathan Garrett had died of wounds and, and Dane Whitman, his nephew, his fellow scientist, had, uh, had gained access to all this technology under the auspices that he would be a force for good and not someone who is evil. And so he, uh, he gets on his flying horse named Aragorn and, uh, you know, flies right into Avengers history on the cover of Avengers 48, the Black Knight lives again okay um so so um this is where we get the new black knight i would love to get a copy and obtain one i don't have one i'm sure they are pricey um as can be given given you know the same trajectory that that, that falls upon all of these characters because i'm of the opinion that black knight is probably going to be around or a long time when i encountered black knight in the pages of the avengers when i was a kid because he was you know walking through the pages of that comic. And as I've covered so many times, Marvel brilliantly had an entire line of reprint comics running alongside. So you got Avengers and the old, these Avengers 48 was being reprinted at the same time, you know, as Avengers 141 around that time. I'm just ballparking it here, okay? Because they were featured in a comic called Marvel Triple Action and Marvel Triple Action uh, or Super Action. They had both. Uh, I think it's Marvel Triple Action, was reprinting all the Avengers titles that featured these stories, these earlier, almost 100 issues prior to what you were getting currently. Fantastic Four was published, reprints were in Marvel's greatest comic magazine. 
Marvel Tales was reprinting the Ramita, the early Ramita um, Spider-Man when I was buying the, you know, 1975 Ross Andrew Spider-Man. And, uh, you know, all of the Amazing Adventures became an X-Men reprint book. So, so to give you modern, uh, to give you the old uh, reprint, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Don Heck, uh, X-Men Adventures alongside the current stuff that was blowing our mind, like the Claremont and the and the John Byrne stuff that was blowing our mind. So it was really great that you could get both and you'd have access to both. And that's how I saw Black Knight. And then he would walk in and out of the current Avengers magazine. Again, I loved him. He had a flying horse with wings. Uh, he had his, his power lance. He had his sword. Um, so, so in Avengers 54 and, and 55, well, Black Knight battles Magneto alongside the Avengers. Um, and, uh, and yet the Avengers thought that he was his late uncle in this, you know, uh, the best, the best comic book trope is the mistaken identity, but we thought you were, you know, cause we don't stop and ask questions. Cause honestly, why would you? Cause that, that, that will rob you of 10 to 15 pages of great action. Um, that that's why, come on. You don't, you, you, maybe, maybe Hulk and Thing don't have to fight, you know, if there's enough of that uh, bucket of KFC to go around, but, 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 you know, um, Johnny Storm flew off with it and it, when they weren't looking and, and they both think they, they stole the KFC and so they're going to have a 15 page fight and, and why not? Cause that's what we came to. That's what we plopped our 25 cents, our 35 cents, our 40 cents, 50 cents, 75 cents. However, it escalated as I was a kid, I bought it all. I, I, I came for the action kids. Dane Whitman joins the Masters of Evil, the new Masters of Evil, uh, again, embracing this villainous side, and uh, um, but he did it as a ruse to take them all out, okay? Um, and, and, and again, solidified that this Black Knight is not a pure bad guy. He's, he's, he's a hero. And uh, so, so Roy Thomas really leaned in hard into, uh, you know, establishing that this new Black Knight was a, uh, a character with legs and, and a winged horse, including legs. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, the fact that Kit Harrington is bringing him to life goes to show you that Dane Whitman, you know, has gone the distance from 1967 to right now. And, and, and it's great because he's a cool character. Um, he became a regular and became a member of the Avengers roster, all, you know, eventually hardcore in the eighties, appearing in multiple storylines as a dedicated Avenger, but his journey there, um, again, uh, involved. It's just very complicated with Sir Percy, and and his and his and his um, uncle, you know, Garrett. Dane Whitman has got a complicated history, so it will be interesting to see how they how they work it all out. And uh, because uh, Black Knight was, again, always helping out the Avengers. He went to the wedding of Yellow Jacket and Wasp. And one of my favorite Avengers issues, because he showed up to battle, help the Avengers battle against the Asgardian demons, Yimmer and Surtur. And as a kid, I would go, Yimmer and Surtur. John Buscema drew the absolute hell out of them. They looked amazing. Cold, uh, a frost giant and a demon. Um, and, uh, and Dane Whitman was flying around on his horse in that story and, and I was digging it. So, so does Kit Harrington get Aragorn? Does he get a, a horse with, with wings? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. Obviously we didn't see him in the trailer much. As I said, it was a blink and you miss him appearance, but maybe he dons his armor. Let's hope he brandishes the sword. Maybe he gets a power lance. It's perfect given that the immortals have been with us since Cro-Magnon times that eventually one of them may have romanced him along the way, or maybe he is meeting them now 
and the legend of his of his family goes all the way back to Sir Percy, and it jumps from Garrett. You know, they've done tons of stuff with Black Knight over the years. I was really just wanting to stop and let you know that uh, there have been three of these guys. Started in Atlas Comics. Then Atlas becomes, becomes Marvel Comics. And he becomes one guy, and then he becomes another. And the Dane Whitman stuck. And I very much am in, in, is as interested as any of you in seeing how Kit Harrington pulls off. I think I think they are downplaying his role. I think he's going to have a cool, at least get one great fan favorite sequence that we all cheer. Again, he's in the trailer. Blink, you miss him. It's very brief. Uh, he was not the focus whatsoever. So I do I believe the Black Knight will get his own... Uh, you know, focused spot, commercial spot, internet, trailer. I do. The same way that um, for the last couple of weeks, Dune has been giving different, um, you know, Josh Brolin's gurney, you know, is getting is getting a shot, um, uh, getting a little clip and they run it. And then they're, and they're divvying up all of the different, um, you know, characters in Dune so that we get, you know, solo focuses to kind of excite us about the individuals before they come together to, to become the ensemble. So I absolutely believe we're going to see more of uh, Kit Harrington, uh, Dane Whitman, Black Knight in future spots. But there it is. You know, stuff you didn't know. Maybe you didn't know. If you did know and we walked down memory lane together, you know, hope, hopefully that expanded your awareness. There were three Dark Knight, <laughs> Dark Knights, Black Knights. And it'll be interesting to see what pieces they take because as I said, 10 minutes back, they're going to make their own. They're going to take these elements that I've shared with you and they're going to piece together the MCU version of him. We don't know what that's going to be yet. I look forward to seeing it. That's the point. Um, three different uh, Black Knights, his first Dane Whitman's, you know, charging towards you on the cover of Avengers 49. The Black Knight lives again and Hawkeye and Giant Man or Goliath and Wasp are all reacting very drastically to him as he flies above the skyscrapers. Very exciting. Love the Eternals trailer. Again, pure Jack Kirby um, plus this Roy Thomas uh, or, you know, Stan Lee. Uh, again, we got to go back to Sir Percy. Stan Lee wrote that first story and uh, it was only five issues long, but again, it'll have a, a kind of a, a probably a mixed bag of creator ownership. So here's another little uh, interesting tidbit. If, if you have listened to this podcast at any great length of time, you know that I believe that there was um, there is the greatest artist that ever drew comics, God bless us, he's still with us, is Neil Adams. Now I'm going to pivot here real quick. Neil, we almost lost Neil this last spring of 2021 to sepsis. He... Uh, I was working alongside Neil Adams. As you know, if you picked up my final issue of Snake Eyes Dead Game, no, I'm not trying to insert myself into this, but I am literally, um, you know, a part of this timeline. Neil was the first guy I needed to say yes to get the ball rolling to tell everybody that I got Neil Adams. Neil Adams is, to many people, the greatest illustrator that ever touched a comic book. M much more so than anyone that you think is the greatest. He is the greatest. He defined Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, and the X-Men for an age, okay? His images are still being licensed and used. He's an incredible badass, 80 years old, amazing, amazing talent, has done so much for our industry, but one of the main things he did, and he is absolutely, I have a comic book Mount Rushmore episode. Um, it'll get you It'll get you riled up, but look, man, Mount Rushmore, these are the 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 most important influencers in the history of comics. They they predate your lifespan. If you grew up with the Image guys, none of none of those guys. Not I'm not putting 
Todd Mark Silvestri on Mount Rushmore. Okay, um, it's going to be you know the guys who I believe set the stage for everything that followed. And in Neil's case, no one's done it better than he has at his peak. That losing Neil, we almost lost Neil, and he himself outlined in a very personal share on his live feed on Facebook. He wouldn't. People asked him questions the day later and asked his fans, and he really wanted you and me to hear it from him. And he would tell his fans, they'd be like, no, we're not going to share what happened to Neil. Neil wants you to hear it from his mouth. So go listen to his live feed. And uh, I, like anybody, I was 24 hours late to the party on this, but Neil had gone missing. I had sent him the Snake Eyes page, and he had sent it back to me uh, late February, early March. And uh, he was the first guy in, first guy out. He knocked it out. It was brilliant. It's a double pager. He even said, Rob, I'll do this with you, but it has to be a double pager. And then Neil went dark. Like, he wasn't doing his live shows anymore. He wasn't around. We didn't see him because he's always a presence on his live shows where he is um, selling various aspects of his art, whether it's prints, lithographs, sketches, remarks, original art. He'd gone dark. His family was running, but Neil was gone. People were beginning to wonder what had happened to Neil. So in the spring, late spring, early summer, Neil pops up and he wants to tell you the entire story. I will gloss over it. I want you to hear it from him as well. But the bottom line is he almost died from sepsis. Now, at first they thought it was a stroke, but then his son pointed out the paramedics. Does a man with a stroke fight you and try and cling uh, to, 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 the, to, the, to the chair as hard as my dad did because he did not want to leave the home? And that, that's when they realized, you're right, this isn't a stroke. And his arms aren't numb and, 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 and he was fighting off with his left arm. This is all stuff that Neil shared that I'm just going to gloss over. But it really reminded me that we, if you have a, a talent that you love who has really meant the world to you in the world of comics, you need to let them know. Tom Brevoort, Marvel editor, he's got an executive title. I, I, I want to give him his proper due. But he, about eight, ten years ago, did a thing where he wanted to share with the living how great they were so that, because we always, you know, when someone dies, uh, we all scramble and we go watch their movies, we go listen to their music and we talk about how much we love them. But it's it's while they're living that we should let them know. I really do believe in this. And, and especially in somebody like Neil. I felt, I had my second honeymoon with Neil when I was doing a bunch of shows with him in the same way that I was having a second honeymoon with Stan Lee when I was doing so many shows with them from 2014 on. And I would sit and just chew Neil's, you know, ear off. I mean, I, I kind of, I think I'm just comfortable in my own career now that my curiosity with the stuff that I loved at, in my youth is what uh, drives me so much and, and hearing old stories. So I was able to um, share how much I absolutely adore and love Neil and and sit and, and, and he would tell us great stories. He took my wife and I out to dinner when we were in Cleveland for the very first Wizard Cleveland show, um, it was just the knowledge that he has, the things that he's accomplished are second to none. And we almost lost him. And he was in the hospital for the better part of two months. And it was, as he will tell you, very um, white knuckle uh, and and very, very... um, I mean, when I say we almost lost him, that's from his own words, his family's words. And his family rallied around him and he finally was released. and, And after being at home for a couple weeks... That's when he went live, and that's what he told us about his situation. And you should watch that. You should hunt it down and watch the... It's about an hour, and Neil takes you because he's a great orator. He's a he's 
just such a good speaker. Even after what he's been through, he details all the different stops on his recovery, how fortunate he was to have the medical staff that, that, that he had around him while they decided what it was. And once, once it became sepsis and then the, um, you know, the diagnosis, he, he suffered. He absolutely suffered. I mean, you really will feel for him. And then he found his way back to us. Well, he is, in my opinion, remains the greatest comic book artist that ever lived. He applied all sorts of different applications that had come before him, whether it was John Buscema, whether it was Hal Foster, whether it was Jack Kirby, but then he put his Neil Adams unique illustrative uh, talents, abilities, vision, execution onto the page. The pinnacle, in my opinion, of what he accomplished as an artist and as a writer is Superman versus Muhammad Ali. When Muhammad Ali was as popular as he ever was in the 70s, the, 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 the sports and pop media was obsessed with Muhammad Ali. He pitched and succeeded in getting DC Comics to publish the... It sounds absurd, right? But it's not. Aliens come to our planet. They want to fight a champion. Superman says, I'm your champion. Muhammad Ali goes, the hell you are. You're not even human. I'm the champion. This sets up a bout between Superman and Muhammad Ali to determine who is going to face off to, against their alien champion. And if you think this sounds like the plot to the original Michael Jordan Space Jam, it is, except it came 20 years before that. Somebody who, whoever wrote Space Jam loved Neil Adams, Superman Muhammad Ali. And uh, eventually they rally and um, discover that they, sh they have a plan that they're going to hatch in order to take out... Uh, in order to take out, uh, you know, the bad guys and uh, the bad aliens who are, you know, threatening our very existence. It is such an amazing, uh, it, is, it, is, it is literally my favorite um, comic book, single standalone comic book ever that I've ever seen. The artwork, comics are about artwork. I, I, I hate to, to, to level down writers here and that's, you know, that's on me. You know, I don't mean to hurl insults, but at the end of the day, comic books, for me, is about the graphics and the art, and no one has ever drawn better faces, figures, action, uh, vistas, landscapes than Neil Adams. In 1978, Superman Muhammad Ali was and is one for the ages. I'm fortunate enough to own a great page from the book. No one has ever drawn Superman more commercially appealing, handsome than Neil, and his. you have to see the way he draws Muhammad Ali, it is the most, you will think that Muhammad Ali showed up and acted out each sequence for Neil so that Neil would portray them um, as as lifelike and, and photorealistic as he does. It is nothing short of phenomenal. Why am I beating the drum on this at this time? Because today, no less than Bob Layton, one of the greatest embellishers, inkers, of the Bronze Age, he turned into a hell of a penciler himself and a creator and went on to be a key um, executive in running Valiant Comics. He came up as an assistant to Dick Giordano, who is on my Mount Rushmore of Inkers. He is a top four of all time Mount Rushmore of Inkers. His techniques with a brush and, and quill were picked up by uh, no less than Joe Rubenstein, Terry Austin, Bob Layton, and many to follow. Neil himself. Dick Giordano was a seminal uh, influence on, on the next 30 years that followed him in terms of uh, the ink line and refining the ink lines. It is nothing short of phenomenal uh, what, what, what he was able to do. He inked Neil on Green Lantern 
and Green Arrow. He inked Neil on Superman Batman. Uh, he is the inker on Superman Spider-Man over Ross Andrew. He is, uh, he became uh, uh, an executive uh, publisher for uh, executive editor uh, at DC Comics for many years, made key hiring decisions, gave me work at DC Comics early on. So, so Dick Giordano transitioned from, you know, artist to executive. But uh, at the time that he was inking Superman Muhammad Ali, you, all of the backgrounds were noticeably done by Terry Austin. One of the Terry Austin is one of as a kid in 1978. I'm 11 when I'm picking this comic up. I've already encountered enough Terry Austin on from his Marvel work. Chiefly, what he's been doing with John Byrne on the X Men is so unique. His inking line is so crisp and clean. The cleanest line I've ever set, seen put on paper ever before or since. And 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 I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. No one does as crisp and clean uh, and stylistically so a line as Terry Austin. He did so many of the backgrounds. And and it's it, he, he's so good that you you notice his backgrounds. You go these backgrounds are by Terry Austin, and they are. And Dick Giordano will tell you that. He ended up doing all of the figure work and the faces over Neil. But Bob Blanton today comes out and says, here's a page I can finally be told, I'm going to share with you, that Dick Giordano was so behind on his deadlines because the deadline rush, he's behind because Neil was behind. It's a very thick, standalone book, 60-plus pages, I believe, uh, and just the most immaculate art. That Dick was 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 running behind. That he handed up three pages to Bob Layton to ink from top to bottom, not just to assist on. What and 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 Bob says so. I ink this entire page, and it is a key page in the book with Muhammad Ali in in full battle mode, fight mode with the alien in the boxing match. It, it's a great page. It's phenomenal, and it looks exactly like Dick Giordano, except Bob was always a little, a tiny bit. He was slicker in the same way that Terry Austin was slick. Somewhere between what Terry Austin achieved and what Dick Giordano achieved with their inks, Bob's in the middle. Not quite as slick and brittle and crisp as Terry, but not as organic a line as Dick Giordano and free, and, and not as um, just kind of free freeform and, and freehanding it. A little more structured, but not as structured as Terry, but not as freeform as Dick Giordano. But again, they both were mentored by Dick. They were his apprentices. In a, in a studio of apprentices. And then Bob says, you know, it's on you guys to figure out the other two that I inked. And maybe over the next course of the next weeks, he'll have people, you know, checking out what he inked. And uh, it caused a fervor in the original art. Um, you know, kind of crowd, crew, groups, of which I'm in. But when Bob Layton shared this, we all started scrambling. I got my, I have multiple copies, the original copies. I have them signed by Neil. Then, then there have been really great uh, reprints on nicer paper, hardcovers. Um, so I'm flipping through those trying to figure out what Bob Layton did. Still not the reason I'm telling you this. This is the catalyst. While I'm studying all of this and I'm reading comments on the Facebook group, a guy goes, what does an assistant do anyway? You know, and that is where that is what my wife would say. That was what my son would say. That was that is what anyone off the streets. It's such a natural, curious question. When you say you are Dick's assistant, you were the assistant to Giordano, and he said, you need to ink these fully. I need you to 
fully do, do these to help me catch up on the deadline? Like, what's an assistant do? Well, I've been an assistant myself. And I know others who've been an assistant. As I've said, Terry Austin came up as an assistant. Bob Layton came up as an assistant. Joseph Rubenstein. All of these great, amazing inkers. You'll find probably more in the inking world. Carl Allstetter, who went on to do amazing work for me at Extreme Studios on Bloodstrike, was an assistant to Wolf's Portacio and an assistant to Scott Williams and at one point an assistant to Jim Lee himself. Marat Michaels, who went on to do Brigade, was an assistant to me. Mark Evanier, who I shared with you guys in a recent episode about the untold history of OMAC and how Captain America's origin tied in directly to OMAC, or OMAC's origin was tied directly into Jack's previous fans. We are shared that because Mark Evanier was his assistant. Mark has said that while he was Jack Kirby's assistant, sometimes he was just there to talk to him on the couch while Jack worked. Now, Marat can tell you, as he worked for me when I was getting on the New Mutants, that's what he did. Sometimes I just needed somebody to talk to while I looked at the board, while I worked, someone to interact with so that I wasn't so ridiculously lonely. He would make copies of my work. I I had a process before I put them through the Blue Line application on my printer, before technology had caught up with what I was doing. So many people would light table their layouts. I would draw my layouts very tightly. I'd even ink them. I'd ink these layouts. Um, so they're in black and white ink. And I would then hand them to Marat, whether they were half of an eight and a half by 11 page or a full eight and a half by 11 page. And I would say, Marat, I need you to blow this up. And we got it to where like, I think it was like 67, you know, percentage points on the copy machine would jump it from the half eight and a half by 11 to an 11 by 17 size. We would then print that out and Marat would spend his afternoons transferring them on a light table, taking the Bristol board directly over my layouts and in light pencil, we call it transferring, transferring what I did small to a big canvas. Then he'd hand those off to me. They'd pile up. So he is literally drawing over my layout lines so that I have a basis with which to then attack finishing the pencils and inking them. And that is a style that I used uh, for almost a decade. As Marat graduated to a full-time penciler himself, at Extreme Studios, we hired a a, a kid named George, who's now obviously married and an adult. Um, George was the guy who did transfers, not not just for me, but for Marat and everybody. It's like, look, just put the page, the blow up on the 11 by 17 paper, on the giant bright light table, of which we had many, and do the transfers. Because so many of us liked working small as opposed to working big. I think better small. I do layouts better small. So so we eventually had a guy in the studio who was doing transfers. Nowadays, guys, I scan it in. I, I, I change the settings and I print it out. And so if you see me inking over a faint blue line, that is also from a sketchbook or a very tiny drawing, perhaps on a quarter now of an eight and a half by one page. And I size it up and that's how I've always worked. But but the, the blue line that I get from my Epson printer uh, that I've been getting, the same printer has been doing this with me for 17 years. We tried, we had a guy come in and try, Marat and I were laughing. We had a guy who was a copy salesman who came into my studio who we desperately wanted to get the best technology available 
to um, copy machines at the time and see if it would feed a, an 11 by 17 piece of paper and print blue on it that I could then ink over. And we just couldn't achieve it. And even the lowest gray setting was just gritty and grimy and it was gonna, it, it just wasn't working. So we had to stick with the transfer process. That's one aspect of the assistant work. On X-Force number one, there are backgrounds that I penciled in that Marat inked. He graduated, the more, the more that I inked my own work, Marat filled in the blacks. Sometimes, you know, you do a giant bunch of um, uh, shading that requires deep shadows, what we call blacks. We are not talking about people or a race here. When we say fill in the blacks, that is an area of shadow or rendering or a large swath of black shading. Um, we may put gradients and rendering out of that black before or after that black spotting is done. But when we say filling in the blacks, that is that it really is talking about shadows and rendering. And hair, if when you, you see Superman's hair, I've seen Neil Adams draw Superman's hair. Superman's hair in black and white is black. It's not blonde. It's not open. It's not like, not like Steve Rogers or Clinton Barton or Cable, who is white, gray-haired. Um, spotted black areas on Superman's hair change depending on who draws it. Maybe Kurt Swan just did draw it open and wanted it blue. Just put blue color on that because blue equates black in comic books. But Neil would do the rendering of the hair shines, you know, and so you'd get these indication of different wavy aspects of the hairstyle and the spit curl. Well, when we would do that, or let's say I had a page with Sunspot where Sunspot powered up and he battled the Juggernaut or Gideon well, I would ink the outline and then what we I was taught from inkers years prior, you put X in, X or, you know, just, yeah, X or XXX. And that means X means black. And I would hand those pages to Marat or I would do thick panel borders um, or, or anything, you know, cast shadows, any black areas to say, to fill those in can take 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes a page. And when you're trying to get pages out the door, those, those minutes matter. That 20 minutes across three pages is an hour. And that's an hour that the guy who's doing it doesn't have. Dick Giordano didn't have it. That's why Terry Austin or Bob Layton would spot the blacks or do the backgrounds. That's why, that's how they acted as an assistant. But then Dick Giordano one day says, I need you. I trust you to do the whole thing. And gives Bob Layton these pages of which he has identified one of three in Superman Muhammad Ali. And, and I'm going to find those. I'm going to find the other two. It's so great to, to, to now understand that the entire book is not inked 100% by Bob Layton. I mean, by Dick Giordano. It has got guest inkers and who knows how many more there was. I'm going to put it under the microscope. But the guy that goes, what does an assistant do? Again, so check this out. Then when I'm done inking, there's pencil residue on the page. So Marat would erase them. And later George would erase them. And these are the things that every assistant that I've ever seen, heard, encountered, they do. My first assistant work myself was to Jim Valentino, and it wasn't even comic books. Jim Valentino was a storyboard artist for the Ghostbusters show. The Ghostbusters show that was based on the Bill Murray blockbuster hit with Slimer. And it had all the, you know, all the same guys, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, all of them. Well, he did some scribbled stick figure layouts. And this is how he got paid. Check this out. The job was actually booked by another guy who then split the different sequences down of which he gave Jim, you know, hey, Jim, I'm going to pay you, you know, 
for doing this, for doing the storytelling, for doing the storyboards. I'm going to pay you 200 bucks, let's say. So then Jim comes to me and he hands me style guides um, for, for all the Ghostbusters, Slimer, whatever creatures they're battling. A style guide was generated by an artist with a turnaround from right, left, front, back, you know, um, different viewpoints that you can match. And there was a couple different weekends in that season of Ghostbusters that Jim Valentino, I, I am not fully broken into comics yet. This is before I go and get hired uh, by Mark Grunewald at the very first WonderCon, okay? When I am 18 years old. Jim goes, hey, Rob, because I had been hanging out with Jim. He saw what I was capable of, that I was competent, that I was competent. And he said, here's the style guides. I need you to follow he gave me about 40 pages. Can you do this by the end of the weekend? He gives them to me on a Friday. He says, can I have them on Sunday evening? Of course, I said yes. I sat there in front of the TV and looked because he would have H or, you know, um, V for Venkman was on the stick figures. Because again, this is a speed, uh, 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 a speed process, a speed, you know, deadline. This has to be handed in so that they can then go from storyboards to actually, you know, doing the the different turnarounds and and doing the 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 different aspects of getting it to moving animation but you got to start with the storyboards first so jim is going through blasting through the storytelling because he's a great storyteller and it comes so naturally to him but he does a lot of um stick figures and and just some basic outlines and then i get all of those the originals and on those pages is three basically tv screens it's a it's, it's a kind of landscape style page and across the top if in case you've seen them before were three different tv screens and in those tv screens those are your panels and of course they're shaped like a tv to you know drive home that's a tv show you're doing a cartoon and so i got about 40 of those pages with the turnarounds the, the style guides and i went to town and i made v look like vinkman and i made s look like slimer and at the end of the weekend i handed him jim gave, gave me some critiques on my first job so okay i just need you to do these you know make these adjustments and, uh, and, and for the next round, you know, just, just stay the course and just continue to improve. So he gave me another round and for, for my effort, he was giving me $60 a page because that's how it goes. The guy who gets the guy who got, you know, the job for 400 divvies it out, gives it to Jim for 200. Jim cuts into his money by paying me $60 a page. So he's not having to do the final process, but he's keeping 140 bucks of the, of the gig. And again, this is really standard operating procedure no one was ripping anybody off it takes a village to make this these shows when you see the end of these marvel movies and you see those thousands of names that are going up which are super tiny you need a magnifying glass to see everybody chipped in everybody helped maybe some guy did some rocks in the background and maybe one guy did the the, the leaves that were blowing on a tree in wakanda okay it's 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 group effort all hands on board and that's what i was doing in regards to uh assisting on the Ghostbusters. Well, then Jim had a, his friend Brian Murray had taken over. He had taken the assignment of drawing a new series for DC Comics called The Young All-Stars. And I don't have the number in front of me, but Brian had seen some of what I was doing and Brian had a studio over his mom and dad's sandwich shop in Irvine. And uh, he... Uh, was doing Young All-Stars at the time, and I would drive out to see him because it was cool. Brian had a cool studio, and it was cool, and, and, and you know, you could pay the money and go down and make your own sandwich, especially after hours. And uh, I, was, I, was, I was kind of a big boy at the time, so I liked those sandwiches his parents made. 
But uh, Brian summoned me and said, hey, I need you to help me out on Young All-Stars. I want to say it's six or seven, but there's a battle on the beach with, uh, with Nazis and the Young All-Stars. And Brian says, gives me these really rough little stick figure breakdowns on these sequences on these pages. And they're like aerial shots in his lance, in, in his uh, storytelling. They're bird's eye views. So they're looking down or, or you know, there's a couple of bird's eye views. There's a couple of really um, long distance establishing shots. And it's supposed to be an army of Nazis. And he says to me, you like that George Perez stuff. You like doing little figures. Here, do some little figures for me and I'll pay you $60 a page. Again, I'm starting out. I'm trying to, you know, earn my way and all the money helps and how I'm going to make my money doing art. So I grabbed those young all-stars issues and I went to town and I just drew every little Nazi, um, you know, little, 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 you know, putting little swastikas on these Nazis' arms and outlining the arms, the legs, the helmets, the the guns. And I was actually, you know, an art assistant on an issue of Young All-Star across about four different pages. And uh, that was fun. It was cool. I was, I was producing work on Bristol Board and part of a, a, a artistic, you know, uh, workforce, a, 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 uh, a train of artists trying to get something to deadline. And it was fun when it came out and I saw it colored and I'm like, Hey, I did this. Cause I, he then actually, he asked, he said, can you ink him? Can you ink him after I penciled him? Because Brian was um, mostly inking his own work as much as he could on these issues. So I would again, get my little Bic markers and go to town, get my 0.005 and my one and my, you know, tiny markers. Cause the figures were so small, but I get it. Brian didn't want to waste time doing these crowds of Nazis battling the heroes. And so he said, you like George Perez. You like doing this stuff. He had seen my sample pages. He knew what I was into. And he figured, I'll put you to work. This work. This is like, you know, just grinding him. And he wants to get on to draw the pretty face and the big figure and the other established storytelling. So fine, no problem. I was happy to do it. I was happy to be be a part. What assistants do, whether it's fill in black areas, rule panel borders, uh, line up backgrounds, make copies, sit and talk to the king of comics and keep him company and maybe proofread the script that he's writing on the page before it goes off to the letterer. These are the dominions and the jobs of the assistant. George Perez, before he was a powerhouse, was the assistant of Rich Buckler, who was getting all sorts of work. Rich Buckler was um, a prime penciler for Marvel Comics in the mid-70s whether it was uh, Fantastic Four, Avengers, uh, Power Man, you name it. Rich was drawing it. He was on their top books uh, over at DC, went all over there, did did All-Star Squadron, did Superman, did DC Comics Presents, did tons of covers, and Rich did tons of covers while he was at Marvel too. George came up doing backgrounds, doing figure assist- assists for him. Not everybody came up being an assistant. John Byrne has no history of being an assistant to everyone. He just came in a wonderkund and 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 blew up, okay? So, so, but the guy who says, what does an assistant do? I figured, I can share this with you. I can tell you, you know, the apprentice. What, what is a comic book apprentice? I don't know what a writing apprentice is. I have no intel on that. I am coming at you with a, 
a, a artistic apprentice approach, whether it's learning to use a, cr a crow quill, a brush, erasing pencil lines. Again, it's a blast, and you get to learn the trade and the tools of the trade. And I'm so thankful for every bit of assistant work that I did, whether it was matching up, um, f f you know, fleshing out the figures and matching them to the models so that Vinkman, you know, at a three-quarters view, reacting to Slimer, who's fl flying right at him, you know, through a hotel lobby, um, and matching all those model sheets and making that work under the direction of Jim Valentino, that's fun. That is great fun. It's part of the jam of getting into the business. And so that is what assistants do. That is part of the apprenticeship. Those are our topics for the day. The Eternals, Black Knight, Kit Harrington. There was three of them. Three Black Knights. He's Dane Whitman. He's the one that stuck. He's the Marvel guy, the guy in the pages of the Avengers now coming to you in the Eternals. I'm going to find those other inked pages that Bob Layton did over Neil Adams. And again, say, tell the comic people that you love, you love them. It's in a tweet, in a Facebook post. Do it before they. we almost lost Neil Adams by his own words. And we're so grateful that he's still with us. Guy, he's the best guy that ever did it. And, uh, and, and we, we, you know, again, let him know how much you absolutely uh, dig him. Um, so that when he, because we're all going to leave this earthly plane at some point. But, but you know, once we're gone and in, the, in a box and in the ground, we have no idea what you're, you're going to say about us. So uh, anyway that those are your, your, your mixed bag of topics for today's observations. Man, I hope you had a good time. I, I love, I just love talking every little aspect of this business uh, from, from the movie end to the TV end to the cartoon end to the artistic end. It is, it is so absolutely amazing to share with you guys. And uh, I, I mean, I just, I absolutely love sharing all of the stories that I have, you know, encountered over time. And, and we'll come back next time. There'll be even more. There'll be more to tell. There's always more to tell. This is the part of the show where I share your reviews. When we came back for season two, again, it had been, it had been shared with me how important your reviews are. And you guys have been so generous sharing how much you love this show, leaving your ratings and leaving your reviews. And I'm going to read a couple of them. I always do it at the end of the show. And today I'm going to read uh, a couple that you have been uh, so, um, so generous in sharing with me. And this is from my good buddy, Josh. He calls himself Granite Comics. He signs it, Josh. It says the real deal every time. Rob Liefeld's Rob Observations is the only podcast I listen to each week. Rob is so dedicated to his fans and this podcast that he was still able to make this week's episode even after his immediate return from an international trip. Rob gives his perspective and facts regarding the week's topics, not just opinions, which are really important to me. I've always loved Rob's comics and his dynamics, visual storytelling, but his verbal storytelling via this podcast, just as dynamic and exciting. Thanks for being a huge fan of our medium and not just a pro. Josh. Thank you, Josh. That means the world to me. I am so glad that you are getting the positive vibes and my enthusiasm, and that it is, um, that it is, that it is, uh, playing out for you. Uh, another one is left by a gentleman or a person named Two Miker or Tomiker, T O M I K E R. The best part two. 
Rob, I am writing a review once again because I absolutely love your podcast. This is by far the most informing and entertaining podcast on any platform, especially because it's all about comic books. I love the way you talk about American mythology. I also like how you promote other books and not just your own. Hoping for a major X sequel. Never end this podcast. I'm not intended to end this anytime soon to Micah, to Micah. Thank you for the kind words, you guys. Thank you. I need these reviews. They help so much. They help position us. Um, keep keep it up. Reach out. I read these reviews at the end of every show. I so appreciate that you take your time to write and share them and give us the high ratings. Thank you. I am all over social media. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Okay? With the blue chart, that's really me. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Blue check, really me. I love reading your comments. I love your feedback, your DMs. I try and catch up with all you guys as often as I can. I love the feedback. I love the talks. I love our conversations. I'm all over Facebook. I am literally all over social media. Somehow I find the time and I love it and I love you guys and thanks for listening. So this is the part of the show. You know what we're doing. You know the drill. You are going to take care of yourself. You're going to stay safe and we are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 